First of all, I'm not talking about how unhappy everybody is. Not, not you, you excluded them. All right, talk, talk about everybody other than in here is. <clears throat> uh, I, I'm on the the, uh, the mailing list for Gallup, which is a major research organisation based in America, but they survey things around the world. <clears throat> and what what they've just written a book, which is coming out soon, and what they've discovered is for at least the last 10 years, so not just COVID, for the last 10 years, the world has been coming grumpier. That's not the words they use, they use much more technical language, but basically they've got an index which measures people's levels of anger, stress, worry, sadness, and some physical discomfort as an index. And it's gone up, it's doubled in the last 10 years. And COVID, the two years odd of COVID has just continued. So if you look at the graph, they started measuring it in 2006 and it was pretty level. There's no overhead, but I've got the graph, I'll show you sometime. About 24% of the world's population were <coughs> in this place of anger, stress, so unhappiness. All right, 24%, pretty steady, pretty steady. Something around 2011 and it's grown inexorably so now it's like one in three people on the planet are grumpy. Now that is a very significant shift and it, it was added to by COVID but not started in COVID. And, and, and people, and, and what they're trying to do is rather than measure how much money people make and how much, you know, whether they've got a job or not, the sort of classic economic indicators that governments use, they're trying to measure how people feel about their lives. So it's, a, it's not objective, but it's real for the people that are asking the question. Do you see what I mean? How you feel about your life. So around the planet, people are feeling less happy by a significant degree. So let me ask you a couple of personal questions. Are you okay with that? I'm not expecting a public answer, so just answer them for your own information. Is that all right? Well, I'm going to do it. So. Are you unhappy with your job? Are you struggling on your income? Are you dissatisfied with the community you're in and want to leave it? That's an interesting one. Do you feel lonely? Three point three billion people in the world want a great job, but only three hundred million have one. That's a lot of dissatisfaction. That's like three billion grumpy people just about their work. Two billion people are struggling on their current income. Over a billion people are dissatisfied with their community that they're in and they want to leave it forever. Isn't that interesting? So that could be their, their social group, could be their church, could be their, you know, their, 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 their local place where they live. That's amazing. So the unhappiness with the community people is going like this. Um, yet, 300 million people don't have a single friend. You noticed an incongruity between that. So lots and lots of people are feeling unhappy with the community they're in, but then lots and lots of people don't feel like they've got any friends. So they want to leave their community, but they want to find friendship and those two things. 
don't sit well together, do they? So this is measuring people's feelings about life. It's not necessarily a rational, objective thing. Okay? <laughs> so I'd like to just suggest to you that we live in the world, yeah? All of us live in the world. We walk out the door and we go to work, we raise families, we go to, go to school, we university, whatever. We live, what I suggest to you, we're living in an atmosphere of increasing unhappiness. And I think, I mean, this, is, this bit is not scientific, but suddenly we go for a coffee and someone immediately spots the joy in Teresa. I would suggest to you it's becoming more obvious, the joyful ones, because the sadness is on the increase. And uh, if I had the graph, you'd, you'd see it. You'd see it. And then this is a scientific, massive survey across the nations, not just this nation, uh, and coming up with these massive numbers. There's the mood of the world. And, and they're saying, because the politicians are missing this, and, and, and this dissatisfaction is driving some of the things people want, like Brexit or, or voting for Trump or because they want change, but maybe the things they're voting for is not actually producing the change that they deeply want. Is this making sense so far? So it's good for us to recognise the world we're living in, because actually we're called to affect, infect and contaminate it, but not let it contaminate us. And, and I've been, I've, to be honest with you, I've been wrestling for months with what has this COVID event done to us as a community and the wider church, because you know I'm involved with different churches and leaders, what really is it that's going on? And, and I feel like it's not one simple answer. I think there's multi-layers to what we are all experiencing every single day now and have been now probably for years. And last week I talked about how we grieve well. And, and, and because it's summer, I don't know how much of this is getting recorded, but it's so important that our personal processes are healthy so that grieving can lead you to actually unbelief, which I've seen that happen with a lot of believers. So they've experienced the loss, they've experienced the loss of well, the church is small, they've experienced loss in their own lives, they've experienced loss. And then you have to grieve the loss, but if you grieve it badly, you end up in a place of unbelief. You can't receive good news or get out of your slump. But if you grieve well, that in, in that valley of the shadow of death, that's where God is in a very, very special way. And, and he sets this table before us in the presence of our enemies. We experience supernatural provision that works us all the way through that grief process. And we covered that last week. And I'm sure I'll return to it again because it's very, very apt to where we're all at. We're all going through that. But what this issue is multi-layered, okay? There's a big atmosphere shift happening in our world towards unhappiness, and we have to watch as believers that we are not marinated in it and swept along by it. I I could I could basically plot for Hope Church, I think 2015, the end of 2015. The autumn of 2015 was a season of some of the greatest breakthroughs we have seen as a family. And from that point, I personally, as a leader, have experienced an increasing, well, increasing more grumpiness in Hope Church than we had in the season before that. And trying to work out the unhappiness factor 
in our community. Is that? You may not see that as a leader. I've seen that. I'm like, it feels like a bit too much of what's going on out there start to get on the inside. It's not mean, we'll never be perfect. It's not a perfect church. It's not that there aren't things to learn and grow. But the grumpiness factor doesn't produce faith for change. People stop believing the best and start believing the worst. There's a question I ask people, well, can you just believe the best for this? Because we're all trying to make this better than it was. That's, that, that's our basic journey. So does this make sense? So there's multi-layers. There's an atmosphere we are living in which we've actually got amazing opportunity to change. You know, we can all be, if you like, Teresa this morning, bringing the joy of the Lord into what is a really sore, aching, broken, joyless, increasingly joyless world. <laughs> right, we're now going to talk to the Bible. John 15 is what we're working our way through. If you turn there... That would be fantastic. And I'm going to read John 15, which is what we've been working through the last couple of weeks. <laughs> and I'm going to read, and I'm reading the Passion. I explained why a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I think it's a very, very helpful translation for what we're doing today. So we've done the first chunk reads, I'm breaking into verse 9. I love each of you with the same love that the Father loves me. That, we'll be thinking about that forever. Let me say it again, it's just worth marinating in that for about three centuries. Jesus says to us that he loves us with the same love that the Father loves him. So think about how much the Father loves Jesus and he loves you exactly the same. Nothing added, nothing taken away from that. Isn't that intense and amazing? You must continually let my love nourish your hearts. Alright, so that's a command, is let God love you. At a very deep level. Let him love you. And then he says, if you keep my commands, you will live in my love. So he's just said, let me love you, and now he's telling you how to do it. He's saying, if you keep my commands, you'll live in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands, for I continually live nourished and empowered by his love. Verse 11, my purpose for telling you these things is so that the joy that, now this is amazing how he says this, the joy that I experience, let me say that again, the joy that I, Jesus said, the joy that I experience will fill your hearts with overflowing gladness. The joy that I experience so he wants us to know that we are loved with the same love with which the Father loves him. He loves us. And he experiences, we know about Jesus, that he had joy without measure. He had joy above his fellows. One of the features of Jesus is joy. And the measure to which he experienced that, he wants that to fill our hearts to a level of overflowing gladness. It was so good. We were doing that in worship this morning. It was coming out. And then Chris prayed this phenomenal prophetic prayer. I'm like, yes, God, this is what you're saying. He wants his joy. And his joy isn't circumstantial. It's not geared to how well or not it's going in our lives around us. It's geared. He tells us what it's geared to. It's geared to the Father's love and staying in that by keeping his commandments. Okay? 
Then he says, this is my command, love each other. Because of time, I'm going to skip through this, but I'm going to refer to the sections that follow. Uh, Let's just break into 14. You show that you are my intimate friends when you obey all that I command you. I've not called you servants, I've called you friends. Now, we've talked a lot about our intimacy with the Lord here. Uh, and, and I think it's really important to see, which is connected to what we just said, that actually our intimacy with the Lord is, is profoundly connected to the level of our obedience to the Lord. So he's not just our buddy. We're not just like on equal terms. Like Jan's my friend, I'm her friend, and that's great. But she's not my Lord and I'm not her Lord. And I don't expect her to do everything I say. She might hope that I'll do everything she says in eldership. But it doesn't work like that. It's, we, we work things through, work it out with Mark and all the rest of it. So what, what's happening here is a bit different to that. Jesus thinks he's boss. In fact, not only does he think it, he is it. And he's been established as Lord of all. And for that, we're all deeply grateful. Eh? It means somebody good is fundamentally in charge of the whole darn thing. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> That's good news. That is good news. We know somebody who, I don't say he's in control of everything, but he's basically in charge and he's good. But he's looking for us to develop our friendship and intimacy. And the way we do it is by deepening our sense of his lordship over our lives. And what he goes on to say, which we don't have time to look at, is remember, in verse 18, remember that the unbelieving world hates you. Uh, and it talks, going on to talk about not being a friend of the world's system. So that's kind of what my starting point this morning. If the world is on this drift, let's not be friends with its values and its, and its outlook. Otherwise, we will drift with it into more unhappiness. Yeah? However, if we align our values with Jesus and continually reinstate Him as Lord of our life, if we seek to walk in obedience to Him, our intimacy with Him will increase, our experience of the love of the Father will stay in the love of the Father, which is the same love with which uh, He loves Jesus, and our joy will increase no matter what's happening in the environment, in the world that we live in. Is this just making sense? So it would be very easy to go with the flow, but we're not called to go with the flow. Have anybody, have you seen, uh, oh, the fish is swimming. It's gone. Not the salmon, the, 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 the video series. The Chosen. The Chosen, have you seen The Chosen? There's lots Lots of fishes and the Christians are swimming against the flow. Jesus is actually saying, the world won't always love you if you stick with what I say. Our goal is not to blend in, it's it's to revolutionise by being different. And that can sometimes be uncomfortable. So he's saying, very simply, if you make me Lord and obey me, you'll know increased depths of my love and intimate friendship. And he's saying that on the contrast to that, allegiance to the world is a problem for you. And he puts it, the same author, John, who wrote this, writes a letter, (coughs) 1 John, and he puts it stronger. He says, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Oofed. 
We say that again. Everyone who loves the world, loves the Father, is not in them. Now, in the old days, like even before I was a Christian, old days, so really old days, love for the world was framed like if you go to the cinema, you're loving the world. If you go dancing, you're loving the world. If you, if you like to drink beer, you're loving the world. But actually, that's not really what he's talking about. He's not talking about external actions. What he says in that scripture says that everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the word Father, but from the world. So the pride of life is a big deal in whatever worldliness is. So it doesn't look like external things. It's much more adopting values. Hey? So we don't want to do that, do we? None of us actually want to do that, but we don't want to get sucked into doing it either by not spotting what's going on. Are you with me? So really my appeal this morning is, is it's, it's different to last week, but it's connected to last week in this, this process we're in of, of recovery and grieving there's something we need to recover afresh for all of us is making Jesus Lord and doing what he says as our priorities. No matter how we feel. Because actually we'll feel better if we do what he says rather than wait to feel better before we do what he says. It's making, it's making sense to Jan. It's making sense to the rest of you. All right, so some of us are waiting to feel better before we do what we know God wants us to do. What this is telling us is let's do what we know what he wants us to do and then we'll start to change how our emotional condition is. If we stay in the other place, we run the risk of not doing so well. Okay, yes. In, in a few weeks' time, we're going to do a series on discipleship. And really what I'm talking about is being an authentic disciple in the midst of a world that's kind of drifting increasingly away from any kind of anchor point of which God is at the centre. A long time ago, certainly our society, UK, moved from anything where God was the source to something much more atheistic. Um, right, here we go. I'm going to give you some hallmarks of worldliness Alright, just to check that this isn't happening to you or anybody you know. But if it is, it's okay. You can say sorry to Jesus, repent, get his help and change. And then I'll give you some keys and clues to sort of walking as disciples in his lordship, which is the route to, to real, is actually the route to authentic joy that the world is craving and looking for and we're the ones who are the conduit for it. Alright? So... Right at the core of society now is there is no God, which is atheism. And the smart philosophers of ages past now in the 19th century, early 20th century, saw that if you get rid of God and gods, the outcome is that you're God. God becomes you. You replace that God or God's with you, because they don't exist, that's, that's basically atheism, is, basically means you're God. Okay? Now the people don't go around saying that, but it means that life doesn't resolve around and revolve around uh, some being that exists outside of you, it's 
You believe fundamentally life revolves around you. You don't bring sacrifices of worship to the Lord or even other gods. You expect sacrifices of worship to come to you because you're God. You with me? So what does that look like in practice? It looks like a society in which rights transcend responsibilities. So I have a right to this recognition to have my baby this way, to define myself this way. I have a right rather than have a responsibility to steward a planet, look after the, look after the fetus that's in my womb, etc., etc. It's a fundamental shift away from responsibilities into rights. And it's in the church. Like, I have a right to this, I have a right to that. Not, not helping. But what's your responsibility? Obedience to the Lord means we become responsible for, before Him to walk with Him in the way that He's leading us and has instructed us. So that's one thing. <clears throat> Me-centeredness means that I do what I want regardless of its effect. I say what I want regardless of its effect. I go where I want and I can be what I want. And, and it's to the point where I can disregard objective truth and science now because I have a, a right to be who I want and define myself according to how I feel rather than anything else. It, it's, so that I can go what I want, go where I want, say what I want, be what I want is, is just very much in there and, it, and it's starting to affect the church. Wouldn't it be great if none of this drift to unhappiness was present in us at all? We, we would actually shine so brightly in, in, a, in a world that's just kind of lost its bearings. Um, I have a right to fulfillment or a right to comfort. Um, the other thing that's happening because it, this, it, it, the world is centered on me is blame. So it's the institution's fault, it's the community's fault, which I think is underneath this dissatisfaction with community that's registering in the survey. So what happens, you start to blame the people around you, the workplace, the government, the, the community, the church, the, the, you, you blame. We have expressions, don't we? We blame the man, we blame them, we blame, you know. But blame leads to bitterness, and bitterness corrupts your heart before the Lord ultimately and, and, and is really, really uh, uh, it, it, it's uh, it's a really it sounds good to be feel right and be right but it feels really bad if you stop for a moment if bitterness is inside of you honestly I've been there, it doesn't feel nice it really doesn't and, and it doesn't help you in your Union and communion with the Lord. Self-centeredness of our is means that we're easily offended and cannot be confronted or corrected. Sometimes, unless it's done so softly and, and carefully that it's couched in so much qualification that it's completely lost its impact. So you're not allowed to say anything directly that's true. Because it offends someone. Is any of this making sense? This is a world 
describing some realities that are not to be our realities. Um, We are called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He's sitting in this room because you believe that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago, was raised from the dead, is ascended to the right hand of the Father, is King of kings and Lord of lords, and at some point in your life you said, I believe that and I want you as my boss. I give you the keys of my life. I'm not driving the car anymore. The temptation is that because of the pressure that's in the world, this all sounds very reasonable because it's everywhere. It's in Netflix, it's in the news, it's in every, every show that you watch, is to think, well, these sort of behaviours are normal and okay. And we start to get seduced and sucked into something that is not the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Hallmarks of disciples of Jesus. He is Lord. You know it, you feel it. He has first call over your time, your money, your energy, your relationships. He has first call, not second or third. Or you would, He has first call over your life. He has first call over your thoughts and your emotions. That doesn't mean we don't struggle. That doesn't mean there are, we're all in the process of learning to abide in the one who is already abiding in us. That's our journey, that's our, our, our wrestle at times. But there's a fundamental thing inside us that says, No, I yield to you, Lord. I submit to you, Lord, to your commands and your words, and your priorities are my priorities. So I want to end with this. I'm quite emotional about this. Uh, In, the, in, it, uh, it, in Revelation, John writes, same author, John writes to the church in Ephesus, and he's really pleased with lots of things about them. And then he says, But I have this problem with you, I have this against you that you've lost your first love. And I'm like, Oh, ouch. I don't want to be that guy. It's been tough, it's been hard, you know, been through COVID. You know what? I feel like that first love needs to be rekindled in me. And then I'm reading what he says to do, and he doesn't say what I think he should say. He says, okay, I want you to fix this, and I want you to do the things you did at first. Not feel the things you felt at first. Like, yeah, I'm just waiting to feel all the things I felt at first. And it's like, you know, do the things you did at first, and then the feelings will come. We have taught the grace of God in different forms and different ways for a long time in this church. And it's really important to remember obedience ultimately trumps everything and obedience isn't legalism so I'm saying God what do you want me to do because I, I what can I do to make sure that I keep stepping into this 
first love experience in my life. And he reminded me of what I used to do when I was a new Christian at university. So I lived in halls and, and we had these little boxes of rooms. And you know, I, was on the, I can remember I was on the ground floor, so I had rooms above me and each side of me. And I used to, I heard and learned something about worship and praise as a young Christian. And I knew that I had to bring a sacrifice of praise which wasn't dependent on how I felt. And some way I figured out, so what I did in my first love was I'd stand in front of my window every morning, somewhere between 7, 7.30 a.m. at university. And yes, people did sleep in most of the time. And I would sing praises to Jesus really loudly every day until I felt different. I can't remember, probably, because it was only one of these sort of little, little windows. And, and probably so long ago, it probably wasn't double-glazed or anything sophisticated like that. And when I started work and actually got a real job, I remember doing the same thing. I would go downstairs and we had patio doors in this house. And I'd stand in front of the patio doors and lift my hands and sing praises to Jesus. So I started... I just got into a habit of getting up, oh, feeling drowsy and needing a coffee and, I don't know, reading the news or something like that. And I'm like, it's like the Holy Spirit, do what you did at first. So I'm getting up, I'm getting my coffee, and as I'm drinking my coffee, I'm standing in front of the window in my study, I'm lifting my hands and I'm singing praise to Jesus before I read the news. And then one morning, I think it was Thursday, I'm just, being, I'm just trying to earth this for you before we... Thursday morning, I think I'd read somewhere the day before about you know the gas price and the electricity price increase that come in. And I'm thinking, man, this is expensive to heat. And I'm in a bit, what I'm doing is I've woken up and basically what's happening, I realised afterwards, I'm anxious about paying my gas bill. So rather than do what I've decided to do, I spent 40 minutes researching ways to see if I could get a better deal on my utilities bill. Rather than, uh, this is honesty, right? And I realised then what I'd done, and I was absolutely gutted. I said, God, I'm really sorry I didn't do what I said. I got on my knees, and I just repented and started to worship, and everything was okay again. Now, probably you're all more holy than me, and those sort of things never happen to you. But, but if, just in case they do, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about here is that we start to remember what we did pre-COVID or whenever it was going great with us, with the Lord. What were the things, what were the habits? And don't wait to feel better, do them and then you'll feel better. Are there any attitudes in the things that I read out that look like or sound like the world echoing around in you? Make Jesus Lord. Submit to the things you know he said that what are in his word and things he's spoken and re-establish his priorities in your life over and above the attitudes that are taking the world basically to a place of increasingly unhealthy mental states. The rise of mental illness is massive and this shift into unhappiness is all the product of making you God rather than him God. simple terms. So can we stand and can we pray together?
Maybe there's a thing that the Holy Spirit has reminded you of to say, you know, you used to do that and I loved it. And I know you don't feel like doing it anymore, but go do it Monday morning or whenever. Um, now's the time to sort of remake that commitment. Or maybe there's an attitude in, in the unhelpful things that I've read that you're like, oh yeah, I do that all the time. Why don't you just bring it to him right now in prayer and say, Lord, I'm, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize I got infected by this worldly drift and I want to surrender that to you. I, I do that old-fashioned thing called repent. I turn away from that and I turn towards you. Will you give me a, a clean heart in this area? And he will. And there's something beautiful and joyful and clean and powerful in that moment of repentance and in that decision of obedience that is just the touch of heaven in your heart in a way that you maybe haven't experienced for a little while. So, Father God, we want to bring these things to you. Things that you're touching in our lives today. And let's start with any sort of attitudes. Father God, I bring my, whatever it was, my sense of entitlement or my, my grumpiness or my, you know, whatever it is. Whatever his thing is, I give this to you. Just say that to him in your heart. I give this thing X to you. I'm, I'm sorry for adopting it, Lord. And I, I turn from it. I turn from it. In Jesus' name, I turn from it. Holy Spirit, what, what are you going to give me uh, in its place? And he will. He'll give you. He'll replace. He doesn't just remove. He replaces. And then secondly, Holy Spirit, I, I want to renew my, my first love. Is there, is there a thing I can do? Is there a thing I can do? I may not feel like doing. I've got out of the habit of doing. forgot that I did. Is there a thing? And, and right now, I want to commit and recommit my life to doing the thing that you put your finger on and, and, and I'll, I'll tell one other person that I'm going to do it so that it doesn't get blown out the window and forgotten but someone will say hey you know that thing you said are you doing it thank you Jesus you are Lord you are King you called us to distribute joy to the nations and uh, thank you for this joyful excited group of people Amen